All right, welcome back to the American History Podcast. In today's podcast episode, we're going to be examining a 13-year period from 1776 to 1789, Crisis and Constitution. So let's dive in, folks. So after independence is declared in July 1776, many of America's best political minds turned to draw up constitutions for their individual states. In truth, the state constitutions were very critical, crucial Republican experiments, the first efforts at establishing a government of and by the people. All the revolutionaries agreed that the people, not a king or a few privileged aristocrats, should rule. Yet they're equally certain that Republican governments are best suited to small territories. They believe that the new United States is too sprawling and its people too diverse to be safely consolidated into one single national government. They feared, too, that the government of a large republic would inevitably, inevitably, (laughs) sorry, inevitably grow indifferent to popular concerns, being distant from many of its citizens. Without being under the watchful eye of the people, representatives would become less accountable to the electorate and turn tyrannical. A federation of small state republics, they reasoned, would stand a far better chance of enduring. So the new state constitutions retain the basic form of their old colonial governments, most providing for a governor and a bicameral legislature. Most states dramatically change the balance of power among the different branches of government. From the Republicans' perspective in 1776, the greatest problem of any government lay in curbing executive power. What had driven Americans into rebellion was the abuse of authority by the king and his appointed officials. To ensure that the executive can never again threaten popular liberty, the new states either accorded almost no power to the governors or abolished that office. The governors had no authority to convene or dissolve the legislature. They could not veto the legislature's laws, grant land, or build and establish courts. Most important governors had few powers to appoint other state officials. All these limits are designed to deprive the executive of any patronage or other form of influence over the legislature. What the state governors lost, the legislatures gained. So to ensure that those powerful legislatures truly represented the will of the people, the new state constitutions called for annual elections, required candidates for the legislature to live in the district they represented. Many states even asserted the right of voters to instruct the men elected to office how to vote on specific issues. Although no state grants universal manhood suffrage, most reduce the amount of property required of qualified voters. So it's a little different. (coughs) Excuse me. At this time, you had to own property in order to vote. So finally, state Supreme Courts were also either elected by the legislatures or appointed by an elected governor. So with all the power put into these popular assemblies, a majority of voters within the state could do whatever they wanted, unchecked by governors or courts, which opened the door for legislatures to turn as tyrannical as governors. But the revolutionaries brushed that prospect aside. Republican theory assured them that the people possessed a generous share of civic virtue, the capacity for selfless pursuit of the general welfare. In an equally momentous change, the revolutionaries insisted on written state constitutions. Whenever government appeared to exceed the limits of its authority, Americans wanted to have at hand the written contract between rulers and ruled. When 18th century Englishmen used the word constitution, they meant the existing arrangement of government, not an actual document, but a collection of parliamentary laws, customs, and precedents. 
but Americans believe that a constitution should be a written code that stood apart from and above government, a yardstick against which the people measured the performance of their rulers. After all, they reason, if Britain's constitution had been written down available for all to consult, would American rights have been violated? Hmm, interesting question, interesting point, right? While Americans lavish attention on their state constitutions, the national government nearly languished during the decade after 1776. So with the coming of independence, the Second Continental Congress conducted the common business of the Federated States. It created and maintained the Continental Army, issued currency, and negotiated with foreign powers. Although Congress acted as a central government by common consent, it lacked any legal basis for its authority. To redress that need, in July 1776, Congress appointed a committee to draft a constitution for a national government. The urgent business of waging the war made for delay, but Congress approved the first national constitution in November 1777. It took four more years until February 1781 for all of the states to ratify these Articles of Confederation. That is what our first constitution was, our first governing document the Articles of Confederation. So the Articles of Confederation provided for a government by a national legislature, essentially a continuation of the Second Continental Congress. That body had the authority to declare war and make peace, conduct diplomacy, regulate Indian affairs, appoint military and naval officers, and requisition men from the states. In affairs of finance, it could coin money and issue paper currency. Extensive as these responsibilities were, Congress could not levy taxes or even regulate trade. The crucial power of the purse rested entirely with the states, as did the final power to make and execute laws. Even worse, the national government had no distinct executive branch. Congressional committees constantly changing in their membership not only had to make laws, but had to administer and enforce them as well. So these weaknesses appear more evident in hindsight, right? For Congress in 1777, it was no easy task to frame a new government in the midst of a war. Most American leaders in the 1770s had given little thought to federalism, the means by which political power could be divided among the states and the national government. In any case, creating a strong national government would have antagonized many Americans who, after all, had just rebelled against the distant centralized authority of Britain's king and parliament. Guided by Republican political theory and by their colonial experience, American revolutionaries created a loose confederation of 13 independent state republics under a nearly powerless national government. They succeeded so well that the United States almost failed to survive its first decade of independence. The problem was that lessons from the colonial past were not always useful guides to post-war realities. The surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown in 1781 marks the end of military crisis in America. But as the threat from Britain receded, so did the source of American unity. The many differences among Americans, most of which lay submerged during the struggle for independence, surfaced in full force. Those domestic divisions, combined with challenges to the new nation from Britain and Spain, created conflicts that neither the states nor the national government proved equal to handling. The greatest opportunities and the greatest problems for post-war Americans awaited in the rapidly expanding West. With the boundary of the new U.S. now set the Mississippi River, more settlers are spilling across the Appalachian Mountains, planting farmsteads and towns throughout Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. By 1790, places that had been almost uninhabited by whites in 1760 held more than 2.25 million people. 
one-third of our country's population at the time. After the revolution, as before, Western settlement fostered a lot of conflict. American claims that its territory stretched all the way to Mississippi were by no means taken for granted by European and Indian powers. The West also confronted Americans with questions about their own national identity. Would the newly settled territories enter the nation as states on an equal footing with the original 13 states? Would they be ruled as dependent colonies? The fate of the West, in other words, constituted a crucial test of whether these United States could grow and still remain united. Both the British from their base in Canada and the Spanish from Florida and Louisiana hoped to chisel away at the American borders. Their considerable success in the 1780s exposed the weakness of the Confederation diplomacy. So before the ink was dry on the Treaty of Paris, Britain's ministers are secretly instructing Canadians to maintain their forts and trading posts inside the United States Northwestern frontier. They reckoned correctly that with the Continental Army disbanded, the Confederation could not force the British to withdraw. The British also made some mischief along the Confederation's northern borders, mainly with Vermont. For decades, Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys had waged a war of nerves with neighboring New York, which claimed Vermont as part of its territory. After the Revolution, the British tried to woo Vermont into their empire as a province of Canada, a flirtation that pressured Congress into granting Vermont statehood in 1791. So the loyalty of the southwestern frontier was even less certain. By 1790, more than 100,000 settlers had poured through the Cumberland Gap to reach Kentucky and Tennessee. But the commercial possibilities of the region depended entirely on access to the Mississippi and the port of New Orleans, since it was far too costly to ship southwestern produce over the rough trails east across the Appalachians. And the Mississippi route was still dominated by the Spanish, who controlled Louisiana as well as forts along western Mississippi shores as far north as St. Louis. The Spanish, seeing their opportunity, closed the Mississippi to American navigation in 1784. That action prompted serious talk among Southwesterners about seceding from the United States and joining Spain's empire. The Spanish also tried to strengthen their hold on North America by making common cause with the Indians. A particular concern to both groups was protecting Spanish Florida from the <coughs> encroachment of American settlers filtering south from Georgia. Excuse me, folks. I'm going to take a short break and be right back. All right, we are back. So let's pick up where we left off. So the Spanish. All right, the Spanish. The Spanish were trying to strengthen their hold in North America by making a common cause with the Indians. And a particular concern to both groups was protecting Spanish Florida from encroachment of American settlers coming south from Georgia. Florida's governor was complaining these backwoods folk are distinguished from savages, Indians, only in their color, language, and the superiority of their depraved cunning and untrustworthiness. So Spanish colonial officials responded eagerly to the overtures of a young man named Alexander McGillivray. He's a young Indian leader whose mother was of French Creek descent. He was mixed and his father was a Scots trader. And his efforts brought about a treaty of alliance between the Creeks and the Spanish in 1784, quickly followed by similar alliances with the Chickasaws and the Choctaws. So as if these foreign intrigues were not divisive enough, 
the states continue to argue among themselves over western land claims. So the old royal charters for some colonies had extended their boundaries all the way to the Mississippi and beyond. So the charters were very often vague, granting, for example, both Massachusetts and Virginia sorry, undisputed possession of present-day Wisconsin. And in contrast to other charters, limited state boundaries to within a few hundred miles of the Atlantic coast. Landed states, such as Virginia, they wanted to secure control over large territory granted by their charters. And landed states, uh, some of the 13 colonies that became the U.S., they originally had been granted land whose western boundaries were vague or overlapped land granted to other colonies. Landless states, which included Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, sorry, and New Jersey, they called on Congress to restrict the boundaries of landed states and to convert western lands into a domain administered by the Confederation. So the landless states lost the opening round of the contest over ownership of the West. The Articles of Confederation acknowledged the old charter claims of the landed states. And then Maryland, one of the smallest landless states, retaliated by refusing to ratify the Articles. Since every state had to approve the Articles before they were formally accepted, the fate of the United States hung in the balance. So one by one, the landed states relented. The last holdout, Virginia, in January 1781, ceded or gave up its charter rights to land north of the Ohio River. So they finally were kind of coming to an agreement a little bit here. So an even greater source of contention concerned the sort of men Westerners elected to political office. The state legislatures of the 1780s were both larger and more democratic in their membership than the old colonial assemblies were. Before the revolution, no more than a fifth of the men serving in the assemblies were middle-class farmers or artisans. Government was almost exclusively the domain of the wealthiest merchants, lawyers, and planters. After the revolution, twice as many state legislators were men of moderate wealth. The shift was more marked in the north, where middle-class men predominated among representatives. But in every state, some men of modest means, humble background, and little formal education attained political power. State legislatures became more democratic in membership, mainly because as backcountry districts grew, so did the number of their representatives. Since western districts tended to be less developed economically and culturally, their leading men were less rich and cultivated than the seaboard elite. But many Eastern Republican gentlemen, while endorsing government by popular consent, doubted whether ordinary people were fit to rule. The problem, they contended, was that the new Western legislators concerned themselves only with the narrow interests of their constituents, not with the good of the whole state. So, if uh, state legislators couldn't rise above, you know, petty bickering and narrow self-interest, how long would it be before civic virtue and a concern for the general welfare simply just withered away? So such fears of democratic excess also influenced policy when Congress debated what to do with the Northwest Territory. Carved out of the land ceded by the states to the national government, the Northwest Territory comprised the present-day states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. <clears throat> with so many white settlers moving into these lands, Congress dealt with the issue of expansion by adopting three ordinances. The first, drafted by Thomas Jefferson in 1784, 
divided the Northwest Territory into 10 states, each to be admitted to the Union on equal terms as soon as its population equaled that in any of the existing states. In the meantime, Jefferson provided for democratic self-government of the territory by all free adult males. A second ordinance of 1785 set up an efficient mechanism for dividing and selling public lands. The Northwest Territory was surveyed into townships of six square miles. Each township was then divided into 36 lots of one square mile or 640 acres. Congress waited in vain for buyers to flock to the land offices it established. The cost of even a single lot, $640, was too steep for most farmers at the time. Disappointed by the shortage of buyers and desperate for money, Congress finally accepted a proposition submitted by a private company of land speculators that offered to buy some 6 million acres in present-day southeastern Ohio. The several members of Congress numbered among the company's stockholders no doubt added to enthusiasm for the deal. The transaction concluded, Congress calmed the speculators' worries that incoming settlers might enjoy too much self-government by scrapping Jefferson's democratic design and substituting the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. That ordinance provided for a period in which Congress held sway in the territory through its appointees, a governor, a secretary, and three judges. When the population reached 5,000 free adult males, uh, makes, uh, Sorry, when the population reached 5,000 free adult males, a legislature was to be established, although its laws required the governor's approval. So a representative could sit in Congress but had no vote. When the population reached 60,000, the inhabitants might apply for statehood and the whole Northwest Territory was to be divided into not less than three or more than five states. The ordinance outlawed slavery throughout the region, but it provided for the return of fugitive slaves to the South. It also guaranteed basic rights, freedom of religion and trial by jury, and provided for the support of public education. With the Northwest Ordinance in place, Congress had succeeded in extending Republican government to the West and incorporating the frontier into the new nation. The Republic now had an orderly way to expand its federation in state of states in a way that minimized the tensions between the genteel East and the Democratic West that had plagued the colonies and the Confederation throughout much of the 18th century. Yet, ironically, the new ordinance served to heighten tensions in a different way. By limiting the spread of slavery in the northern states, Congress deepened the critical social and economic differences between the North and South, evident already in the 1780s. The consequences of the new territorial system were also significant for hundreds of thousands of the continent's other inhabitants. In the short term, the ordinance ignored completely the rights of the Shawnees, Chippewa, and other Indian peoples who lived in the region. In the long term, the system laid the blueprint for bringing new lands into the United States. The ordinance thus accelerated the pressures on Indian lands and aggravated the social and geographic dislocations already set in motion by disease in the Western conflicts of the Revolutionary War. When white Americans declared their independence, they owned nearly half a million black Americans. African Americans of the Revolutionary Generation, most of them enslaved, constituted 20% of the total population of the colonies in 1775, and nearly 90% of them lived in the South. Yet few political leaders directly confronted the issue of whether slavery should be permitted to exist in a truly Republican society. When political discussion did stray toward the subject of slavery, Southerners, especially ardent Republicans, bristled defensively. Theirs was a difficult position, riddled with contradictions. On the one hand, they had condemned parliamentary taxation as tantamount to political slavery and had rebelled, declaring that all men were created equal. On the other hand, 
Enslaved African Americans formed the basis of the South's plantation economy. To surrender slavery, Southerners believed, would be to usher in economic ruin. Some planters in the Upper South resolved the dilemma by freeing their slaves. Such decisions were made easier by changing economic conditions in the Chesapeake. As planters shifted from tobacco toward wheat, a crop demanding much less labor, Virginia and Maryland liberalized their manumission statutes, laws, providing for freeing slaves. Between 1776 and 1789, most southern states also joined the North in prohibiting the importation of slaves, and a few anti-slavery societies appeared in the Upper South. But no southern state legally abolished slavery. Masters defended their right to hold human property in the name of republicanism. 18th century Republicans regarded property as crucial because it provided a man and his family with security, status, and wealth. More important, it provided a measure of independence to be able to act freely, without fear or favor from others. People without property were dangerous, Republicans believed. Because the poor can never be politically independent, Southern defenders of slavery thus argued that free, propertyless black people would pose a political threat to the liberty of propertied white citizens. Subordinating the human rights of blacks to the property rights of whites, Southern Republicans reached the paradoxical conclusion that their freedom depended on keeping African Americans in bondage. The North followed a different course. Because its economy depended far less on slave labor, black emancipation did not run counter to powerful economic interests. Anti-slavery societies, the first founded by the Quakers in 1775, spread throughout the northern states during the next quarter century. Over the same period, the legislatures of most northern states provided for the immediate or gradual abolition of slavery. Freedom for most of northern African Americans came slowly, but by 1830 there were fewer than 3,000 slaves out of a total northern black population of 125,000. The revolution, which had been fought for liberty and equality, did little to change the status of most black Americans. By 1800, more enslaved African Americans lived in the United States than had lived there in 1776. Slavery continued to grow in the lower south as the rice culture of the Carolinas and Georgia expanded and as the new cotton culture spread westward. Still, a larger number of slaves than ever before became free during the war and in the decades following, whether through military service, successful escape, manumission, or gradual emancipation. All these developments fostered the growth of free, free black communities, especially in the upper south and in northern cities. By 1810, free African Americans made up 10% of the total population of Maryland and Virginia. The composition of the post-war free community changed as well. Before independence, most free blacks had been either mulattoes, the offspring of interracial unions, or former slaves, too sick or aged to have value as laborers. In contrast, the free population of the 1780s were darker skinned, younger, and healthier. This group injected new vitality into black communal life, organizing independent schools, churches, and mutual benefit societies for the growing number of free people of color. After the revolution, slavery ceased to be a national institution. It became the peculiar institution of a single region, the American South. With the outbreak of the revolution, Americans had suffered an immediate loss of the manufactured goods, markets, and credit that Britain had formerly supplied. <coughs> Matters did not improve with the coming of peace. France and Britain flooded the new states with their manufacturers and post-war Americans eager for luxuries indulged in a most unrepublican spending spree. The flurry of buying left some American merchants and consumers as deeply in debt as their governments. 
when loans from private citizens and foreign creditors such as France had proved insufficient to finance the fighting, both Congress and the states have printed paper money, a whopping total of $400 million. The paper currency was backed only by the government's promise to redeem the bills with money from future taxes. Since legislatures balked at the unpopular alternative of levying taxes during the war. For the bills to be redeemed, the United States had to survive. So by the end of 1776, when Continental forces sustained a series of defeats, paper money started to depreciate dramatically. By 1781, it was virtually without value, and Americans coined the expression, not worth the Continental. The printing of paper money, combined with a wartime shortage of goods, triggered an inflationary spiral of scarcer and scarcer goods, and costing more and more worthless dollars. In this spiral, creditors were gouged by debtors who paid them back with depreciated currency. At the same time, soaring prices for food and manufactured goods eroded the buying power of wage earners and small farmers. And the end of the war brought on demands for prompt repayment from the new nation's foreign creditors, as well as from soldiers seeking back pay and pensions. Congress could do nothing. With no power to regulate trade, it could neither dam the stream of imported goods rushing into the states nor stanch the flow of gold and silver to Europe to pay for these items. With no power to prohibit the states from issuing paper money, it could not halt depreciation. With no power to regulate wages or prices, it could not curb inflation. With no power to tax, it could not reduce the public debt. Efforts to grant Congress greater powers met with determined resistance from the states. Within states, too, economic problems aroused discord. Some major merchants and large commercial farmers have profited handsomely during the war by selling surprise to the American, British, and French armies at high prices. Eager to protect their windfall, they lobby state legislatures for an end to inflationary monetary policies. That meant passing high taxes to pay wartime debts, a paper currency that was backed by gold and silver, and an active policy to encourage foreign trade. Less affluent men fought back, pressing legislatures for programs that met their needs. Western farmers, often in debt, urged the states to print more paper money and to pass laws lowering taxes and postponing the foreclosure of mortgages. Artisans opposed merchants by calling for protection from low-priced foreign imports that competed with the goods they produced. They set themselves against farmers as well by demanding price regulation of the farm products they consumed. In the continuing struggle, the state legislatures became the battleground of competing economic factions. As the 1780s wore on, conflicts mounted. As long as the individual states remained sovereign, the Confederation was crippled, unable to conduct foreign affairs effectively, unable to set coherent economic policy, unable to deal with the discontent in the West. Equally dismaying was the discovery that many Americans, instead of being selflessly concerned for the public good, selfishly pursued their private interests. The war for independence transformed not only America's government and economy, but also its society and culture. Inspired by the Declaration's ideal of equality, some Americans rejected the subordinate position assigned to them under the old colonial order. Westerners, newly wealthy entrepreneurs, urban artisans, and women all claimed greater freedom, power, and recognition. The authority of the traditional leaders of government, society, and the family came under a new scrutiny. The impulse to defer to social superiors became less automatic. The new assertiveness 
demonstrated how deeply egalitarian assumptions were taking root in American culture. The revolution gave rise to a new sense of social identity and a new set of ambitions among several groups of men who had once accepted a humbler status. The war also offered opportunities to aspiring entrepreneurs everywhere. And often they were not the same men who had prospered before the war. At a stroke, independence swept away the prominence of loyalists, whose ranks included an especially high number of government officials, large landowners, and major merchants. And while loyalists found their properties confiscated by revolutionary governments, other Americans grew rich. Many northern merchants gained newfound wealth from privateering or military contracts. Commercial farmers in the mid-Atlantic states prospered from the high food prices caused by wartime scarcity and army demand. The revolution affected no dramatic redistribution of wealth. Indeed, the gap between rich and poor increased during the 1780s. But the revolution's Republican ideals of equality and experience emboldened city artisans to demand a more prominent role in politics. Calls for men of their own kind to represent them in government came as a rude shock to such gentlemen as South Carolina's William Henry Drayton, who balked at sharing power with men who were never in a way to study anything except how to cut up a beast in the market to best advantage, to cobble an old shoe in the neatest manner, or to build a necessary house. The journeymen who worked for master craftsmen also exhibited a new sense of independence, forming new organizations to secure higher wages. But the greatest gains came to those men newly enriched by the war and by opportunities of independence. Representative of this aspiring group was William Cooper, a Pennsylvania Quaker who did not support the revolution, but in the aftermath strove to transform himself from a wheelwright into a gentleman. He hoped to effect that change through another, the transformation of thousands of acres of hilly, heavily forested land around Otsego Lake in upstate New York into wheat-producing farms clustered around a market village called Cooperstown. Yankee immigrants fleeing the shrinking farms of long-settled New England made Cooper's vision a reality and made him the leading land developer of the 1790s. But the influx of white settlement radically altered the environment of what had been part of Iroquois. Farmers killed off panthers, bears, and wolves to protect their livestock. Grain farming leached nutrients from the thin topsoil, forcing farmers to clear more trees, and as the forest barrier fell, weeds and insects invaded. By the beginning of the 19th century, the children of many small farmers were migrating to western New York and northern Ohio. Similar scenarios played out on frontiers throughout the new United States, and everywhere, too, men like William Cooper demanded and received social recognition and political influence. Even though some, like Cooper, never lost the crude manners that portrayed humble origins, they styled themselves as the aristocracy of merit, enshrined by Republican ideals. Not long after the fighting with Britain had broken out, Margaret Livingston of New York wrote to her sister Catherine, You know that our sex are doomed to be obedient in every stage of life, so that we shouldn't be great gainers by this contest. By war's end, however, Eliza Wilkinson from rural South Carolina was complaining boldly to a woman friend. The men say we have no business with political matters. It's not our sphere. But I won't have it thought that because we are the weaker sex as to bodily strength, my dear, we are capable of nothing more than minding the dairy. Surely we may have enough sense to give our opinions. What separated Margaret Livingston's resignation from Eliza Wilkinson's confidence was the revolution. 
Wilkinson had managed her parents' pl plantation during the war and defended it from the British marauders. Other women discovered similar reserves of skill and resourcefulness. When soldiers returned home, some were surprised to find their wives and daughters who had been running family farms and businesses, less submissive and more self-confident. But American men had not fought a revolution for the equality of American women. In fact, male revolutionaries gave no thought to the role of women in the new nation, assuming that those of the weaker sex were incapable of making informed and independent political decisions. Most women of the revolutionary generation agreed that the proper female domain was the home, not the public arena of politics. Still, the currents of the revolution occasionally left gaps that allowed women to display their political interests. When a loosely worded provision in the New Jersey state constitution gave the vote to all free inhabitants owning a specified amount of property, white widows and single women went out to the polls. Only in 1807 did the state legislature close the loophole. In the wake of the revolution, there also appeared in England a book that would become a classic text of modern feminism, Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women, 1792. Attracting a wide, if not widely approving, readership in America as well, it called not only for laws to guarantee women's civil and political equality, but also for educational reforms to ensure their social and economic equality. Wollstonecraft Craft dashed off vindication in six short months. She charged that men deliberately conspired to keep women in a state of perpetual childhood by giving them inferior, frivolous educations that encouraged young girls to fixate on fashion and flirtation and made them only anxious to inspire love when they ought to cherish a nobler ambition and by their abilities and virtues exact respect. Girls, she proposed, should receive the same education as boys, including training that would prepare them for careers in medicine, politics, and business. No woman should have to pin her hopes for financial security on making a good marriage, Wollstonecraft argued. On the contrary, well-educated and resourceful women, capable of supporting themselves, would make the best wives and mothers, assets to the family and the nation. Vindication might have been written in gunpowder rather than ink, given the reaction it aroused on both sides of the Atlantic. Even so, Wollstonecraft won many defenders among both many and women, men and women, sorry, who sometimes publicly and more often privately expressed their agreement with her views. Among them was the Philadelphia Quaker Elizabeth Drinker, who confided to her diary that in very many of her sentiments, she speaks my mind. The decades around 1800 also witnessed a heightened concern for the chastity of women. Books, magazines, and newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic overflow with cautionary tales of young white women who were seduced or coerced to surrendering their virginity by unscrupulous rakes, only to be abandoned by these faithless lovers, disowned by their families for becoming pregnant out of wedlock, and finally reduced to beggary or prostitution. Seduction literature sent the unmistakable message that young women must preserve their sexual purity. Women were equipped with greater self-control by nature, authors advised, and they were obliged to inspire the same restraint in their suitors because men were naturally passionate and impulsive. Depicting women as the guardians of sexual virtue marked a major shift in cultural attitudes because for centuries before, most male writers had insisted that women were the more dangerous sex, their insatiable lust and deceitful ways luring men into sin. 
In the New Republic, the new image of women as the upholders of private virtue met with an enthusiastic reception, especially among those who believed that wives and mothers had an obligation to encourage Republican virtue in their husbands and children. That view, known as Republican motherhood, inspired many educational reformers in the revolutionary generation. Philadelphia and Benjamin Rush argue that only educated and independent-minded women could raise the informed and self-reliant citizens that a Republican government required, while New Englander Judas Sargent Murray urged the cultivation of women's minds to encourage self-respect. Their efforts contributed to the most dramatic change in the lives of women after the war, the spread of female literacy. Between 1780 and 1830, the number of American colleges and secondary academies rose dramatically, and some of these new institutions were devoted to educating women. Not only did the number of schools for women increase, but these schools also offered a solid academic curriculum. By 1850, for the first time in American history, there were as many literate women as there were men. The revolution also prompted some states to reform their marriage laws, making divorce somewhat easier, although it remained extremely rare. But although women won greater freedom to divorce, married women still could not sue or be sued, make wills or contracts, or buy and sell property. Any wages they earned went to their husbands, so did all personal property that wives brought into a marriage, so did the rents and profits of any real estate they owned. Despite the high ideals of Republican motherhood, most women remained confined to the domestic sphere of the home and deprived of the most basic legal and political rights. Why wasn't the American Revolution more revolutionary? Independence secured the full political equality of white men who owned property, but women were still deprived of political rights, African Americans of human rights. Why did the revolutionaries stop short of extending equality to the most unequal groups in American society and with so little sense that they were being inconsistent? In part, the lack of concern was rooted in Republican ideals themselves. Republican ideology viewed property as the key to independence and power. Lacking property, women and black Americans were easily consigned to the custody of husbands and masters. Then too, prejudice played its part. The perception of women and blacks as naturally inferior beings, but revolutionary leaders also failed to press for greater equality because they conceived their crusade in terms of eliminating the evils of a European past dominated by kings and aristocrats. They believed that the great obstacle to equality was monarchy. Kings and queens who bestowed hereditary honors and political office on favored individuals and granted legal privileges and monopolies to favored churches and businesses. These artificial inequalities posed the real threat to liberty, most Republicans concluded. In other words, the men of the revolution were intent on attaining equality by leveling off the top of society. It did not occur to most Republicans that the cause of equality could also be served by raising up the bottom by attacking the laws and prejudices that kept African Americans enslaved and women dependent. The most significant reform of the Republican campaign against artificial privilege was the dismantling of state-supported churches. Most states had a religious establishment. In New York and the South, it was the Anglican Church. In New England, the Congregational Church, where the Puritans were. Since the 1740s, dissenters who did not worship at state churches have protested laws that taxed all citizens to support the clergy of established denominations. After the revolution, as more dissenters became voters, state legislators gradually abolished state support for Anglican and Congregational churches. 
not only in religious life but in all aspects of their culture Americans rejected inequalities associated with a monarchical past and that spirit reformers attacked the society society of Cincinnati a group organized by former officers of the Continental Army in 1783 the society which was merely a social club for veterans was forced to disband for its policy of passing on its membership rights to eldest sons in this way Critics charged the Society of Cincinnati was creating artificial distinctions and perpetuating a hereditary warrior nobility. Today, many of the Republican efforts at reform seem misdirected. While only a handful of revolutionaries worked for the education of women and the emancipation of slaves, enormous zeal went into fighting threats from a monarchical past that had never existed in America. Yet the threat from kings and aristocrats was real to the revolutionaries, and indeed remained real in many parts of Europe. Their determination to sweep away every shred of formal privilege ensured that these forms of inequality never took root in America. While Americans from many walks of life sought to realize the Republican commitment to equality, Congress wrestled with the problem of preserving the nation itself. With the new republic slowly rending itself to pieces, some political leaders concluded that neither the Confederation nor the state legislatures were able to remedy the basic difficulties facing the nation. But how could the states be conceived to surrender their sovereign powers? The answer came in the wake of two events, one foreign, one domestic, that lent momentum to the cause of strengthening the central government. The international episode that threatened to leave the Confederation in shambles was a debate over a proposed tr treaty with Spain. In 1785, Southwesterners still could not legally navigate the Mississippi and still were threatening to secede from the Union and annex their territory to Spain's American Empire. To shore up Southwestern loyalties, Congress instructed its Secretary of Foreign Affairs, John Jay, to negotiate an agreement with Spain preserving American rights to navigate on the Mississippi River. But the Spanish emissary, Don Diego de Gardoqui, sweet-talked Jay into accepting a treaty by which the United States would give up all rights to the Mississippi for 25 years. In return, Spain agreed to grant trading privileges to American merchants. Jay, a New Yorker, knew more than a few northern merchants who were eager to open new markets, but when the proposed treaty became public knowledge, Southwesterners denounced it as nothing short of betrayal. The treaty was never ratified, but the hostility stirred up during the debate revealed the strength of sectional feelings. Only a decade later, when the Senate ratified a treaty negotiated with Spain by Thomas Pinckney in 1796, did Americans gain full access to the Mississippi. On the heels of this humiliation by Spain came an inter internal conflict that challenged the notion that individual states could maintain order in their own territories. The trouble erupted in western Massachusetts, where many small farmers were close to ruin. Yet they still had to pay mortgages on their farms, still had other debts, and were perpetually short of money. In 1786, the lower house of the Massachusetts legislature obliged the farmers with a package of relief measures, but creditors in eastern Massachusetts, determined to safeguard their own investments, persuaded the upper house to defeat the measures. In the summer of 1786, western farmers responded, demanding that the upper house of the legislature be abolished and that the relief measures go into effect. That autumn, 2,000 farmers rose in armed rebellion led by Captain Daniel Shays, a veteran of the revolution. They closed the county courts to halt creditors from foreclosing on their farms and marched on the federal arsenal at Springfield. The state militia quelled the uprising by February 1787, but the insurrection left many in Massachusetts and the rest of the country thoroughly shaken.
Daniel Shea's rebels were no impoverished rebel. They were reputable members of Western communities who wanted their property protected and believed that government existed to provide that protection. The Massachusetts state legislature had been unable to safeguard the property of farmers from the inroads of recession or to protect the property of creditors from the armed debtors who closed the courts. It had failed, in other words, to fulfill the most basic aim of Republican government. Other states with discontented debtors feared what the example of Western Massachusetts might mean for the future of the Confederation itself. But by 1786, Shays' Rebellion supplied only the sharpest jolt to a movement for reform that was already underway. Even before the rebellion, a group of Virginians had proposed a meeting of the states to adopt a uniform system of commercial regulations. Once assembled at Annapolis in September 1786, the delegates from five states agreed to a more ambitious undertaking. They called for a second, broader meeting in Philadelphia, which Congress approved for the express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. The 55 men who traveled over muddy roads to Philadelphia in May 1787 arrived drenched and bespattered. Fortunately, most of the travelers were men in their 30s and 40s, young enough to survive a good soaking. Since most were gentlemen of some means, planters, merchants, and lawyers with powdered wigs and prosperous paunches, they could recover from the rigors of their journey and the best accommodations offered by America's largest city. The delegates came from all the states except Rhode Island. The rest of New England supplied shrewd backroom politicians, Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth from Connecticut, Rufus King and Eldridge Jerry, Massachusetts men, who had learned a trick or two from Sam Adams. The middle states marshaled much of the intellectual might. Two Philadelphia lawyers, John Dickinson and James Wilson, one Philadelphia financier, Robert Morris, and the aristocratic Governor Morris. From New York, there was Alexander Hamilton, the mercurial and ambitious young protege of Washington. South Carolina provided fiery orators Charles Pinckney and John Rutledge. It was an assembly of the demigods, gushed Thomas Jefferson, who, along with John Adams, was serving as a diplomat in Europe when the convention met. In fact, the only delegate who looked even remotely divine was the convention's presiding deity. Towering a half foot taller than most of his colleagues, George Washington displayed his usual self-possession from a chair elevated on the speaker's platform where the delegates met in the Pennsylvania State House. At first glance, the delegate of least commanding presence was Washington's fellow Virginian, James Madison. Short and slightly built, the 36-year-old Madison had no profession except hypochondria. But he was an astute politician and a brilliant political thinker who, more than anyone else, shaped the framing of the federal constitution. The delegates from 12 different states had two things in common. They were all men of considerable political experience and they all recognized the need for a stronger national union. So when the Virginia delegation introduced Madison's outline for a new central government, the convention was ready to listen. What Madison had in mind was a truly national republic, not a confederation of independent states. His Virginia plan proposed a central government with three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. Furthermore, the legislative branch, Congress, would possess the power to veto all state legislation. In place of the Confederation's single assembly, Madison substituted a bicameral legislature with a lower house elected directly by the people 
and an upper house chosen by the lower from nominations made by state legislatures. Representatives to both houses would be apportioned according to population, a change from practice under the articles in which each state had a single vote in Congress. Madison also revised the structure of government that had existed under the articles by adding an executive who would be elected by Congress and an independent federal judiciary. After two weeks of debate over the Virginia plan, William Patterson, a lawyer from New Jersey, presented a less radical counterproposal. While his New Jersey plan increased Congress's power to tax and to regulate trade, it kept the national government as a unicameral assembly, with each state receiving one vote in Congress under the policy of equal representation. The delegates took just four days to reject Patterson's plan. Most endorsed Madison's design for a stronger central government. Even so, the issue of apportioning representation continued to divide the delegates. While smaller states pressed for each state's having an equal vote in Congress, larger states backed Madison's provision for basing representation on population. Underlying the dispute over representation was an even deeper rivalry between southern and northern states. While northern and southern populations were nearly equal in the 1780s, the south's population was growing more rapidly and the northern states were more numerous. Giving the states equal votes would put the South at a disadvantage. Southerners feared being outvoted in Congress by the northern states and felt that only proportional representation would protect the interests of their section. That division turned into a deadlock as the wet spring burned off into a blazing summer. The stifling heat was made even worse because the windows remained shut to keep any news of the proceedings from drifting out onto the Philadelphia streets. Finally, as the heat wave broke, so did the political stalemate. On July 2nd, a committee headed by Benjamin Franklin suggested a compromise. States would be equally represented in the upper house of Congress, each state legislature appointing two senators to six-year terms. That satisfied the smaller states. In the lower house of Congress, which alone could initiate money bills, representation was to be apportioned according to population. Every 30,000 inhabitants would entitle a state to send one representative for a two-year term. A slave was to count as three-fifths of a free person in the calculation of popula population, and the slave trade was to continue until 1808. That satisfied the larger states and the South. So the compromise with the two houses and how it created the two chambers, that is known as the Great Compromise. Now... Uh, three-fifths of slaves that is known as the three-fifths compromise so by the end of August the convention was prepared to approve the final draft of the Constitution the delegates agreed that the executive now called the president would be chosen every four years direct election seemed out of the question after all how could citizens in South Carolina know anything about a presidential candidate who happened to live in distant Massachusetts or vice versa but if each state chose presidential electors either by popular election or by having the state legislature name them those eminent men would likely have been involved in national politics have known the candidates personally and be prepared to vote wisely thus the electoral college was established with each state's total number of senators and representatives determining its share of electoral votes an array of other powers ensured that the executive would remain independent and strong the president would have command over the armed forces, authority to conduct diplomatic relations, responsibility to nominate judges and officials and the executive branch, and the power to veto congressional legislation. 
Just as the executive branch was made independent, so too the federal judiciary was separated from the other two branches of government. Madison believed this clear separation of powers was essential to a balanced Republican government. Madison's only real defeat came when the convention refused to give Congress veto power over state legislation. Still, the new bicameral national legislature enjoyed much broader authority than Congress had under the Confederation, including the power to tax and to regulate commerce. The Constitution also limited the powers of state legislatures, prohibiting them from levying duties on trade, coining money or issuing paper currency, and conducting foreign relations. The Constitution and the acts passed by Congress were declared the supreme law of the land. This is known as the Supremacy Clause, taking precedence over any legislation passed by the states. And changing the Constitution would not be easy. Amendments could be proposed only by a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress or in a convention requested by two-thirds of the state legislatures. Ratification of amendments required approval by three-quarters of the states. On September 17, 1787, 39 of the 42 delegates remaining in Philadelphia signed the Constitution. Charged only with revising the articles, the delegates had instead written a completely new frame of government. And to speed up ratification, the convention decided that the Constitution would go into effect after only nine states had approved it. They further declared that the people themselves, not the state legislatures, would pass... Sorry about that, folks. Had a phone call come in that it just automatically stopped recording for me. Sorry about that. But all right. So on September 17, 1787, 39 of the 42 delegates remaining in Philadelphia signed the Constitution charged only with revising the articles. The delegates had instead written a completely new frame of government. And to speed up ratification, the convention decided that the Constitution would go into effect after only nine states had approved it. They further declared that the people themselves, not the state legislatures, would pass judgment on the Constitution and special ratifying conventions. To serve final notice that the new central government was a republic of the people and not merely another confederation of states, Governor Morris of Pennsylvania hit on a happy turn of phrase to introduce the Constitution. We the people, the document begins, in order to form a more perfect union. With great misgivings on the part of many, the states called for conventions to decide whether to ratify the new constitution. Those with the gravest misgivings, the anti-federalists as they came to be called, voiced familiar Republican fears, older and less cosmopolitan than their Federalist opponents. The Anti-Federalists drew on their memories of the struggle with England to frame their criticisms of the Constitution, expanding the power of the central government at the expense of the states, they warned, would lead to corrupt and arbitrary rule by new aristocrats. Extending a republic over a large territory, they cautioned, would separate national legislators from the interests and close oversight of their constituents. Madison responded to these objections in the Federalist Papers. A series of 85 essays written with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay during the winter of 1787 to 1788. He countered anti-federalist concerns over the centralization of power by pointing out that each separate branch of the national government would keep the others within the limits of their legal authority. That mechanism of checks and balances would prevent the executive from opposing, oppressing the people while preventing the people from oppressing themselves. 
To answer anti-federalist objections to a nationalist republic, Madison drew on the ideas of an English philosopher, David Hume. In his famous 10th essay in the Federalist Papers, Madison argued in a, that in a great republic, the society becomes broken into a greater variety of interests, of pursuits, of passions, which check each other. The larger the territory, the more likely it was to contain multiple political interests and parties so that no single faction could dominate. Instead, each would cancel out the others. The one anti-federalist criticism Madison could not get around was the absence of a national bill of rights. Opponents insisted on an explicit statement of rights to prevent the freedoms of individuals and minorities from being violated by the federal government. Madison finally promised to place a bill of rights before Congress immediately after the Constitution was ratified. Throughout the early months of 1788, anti-federalists continued their opposition, but they lacked the articulate and influential leadership that rallied behind the Constitution and commanded greater success to the public press. In the end, too, anti-federalist fears of centralized power proved less compelling than federalist prophecies of the chaos that would follow if the Constitution were not adopted. By the end of July 1788, all but two states have voted in favor of ratification. The last holdout, Rhode Island, finally came aboard in May 1790 after Madison had carried through on his pledge to submit a Bill of Rights to the new Congress. Indeed, these ten amendments, ratified by enough states to become part of the Constitution by the end of 1791, proved to be the Anti-Federalist's most impressive legacy. The Bill of Rights set the most basic terms for defining personal liberty in the United States. Among the rights guaranteed were freedom of religion, the press, and speech, as well as the right to assemble and petition and the right to bear arms. The amendments also established clear procedural safeguards, including the right to a trial by jury and protection against illegal searches and seizures. They prohibited excessive bail, cruel and unusual punishment, and the quartering of troops in private homes. In 1776 was less remarkable than the intellectual freedom from the old world that Americans achieved by agreeing to the Constitution. The Constitution represented a triumph of the imagination, a challenge to many beliefs long cherished by Western Europe's Republican thinkers. Revolutionary ideals have been deeply influenced by the conflicts of British policies, in particular the opposition's warnings about the dangers of executive power. Those concerns at first committed the revolutionaries to making legislature supreme. In the end, though, Americans ratified a constitution that provided for an independent executive and a balanced government. The opposition's fears of distant centralized power had at first prompted the revolutionaries to embrace state sovereignty, but in the constitution, Americans established a national government with authority independent of the states. Finally, the common sense among all of Western Europe's Republican theorists that large national republics were an impossibility was rejected by Americans, making the United States an impossibility that still endures. What then became of the last tenet of the old Republican creed, the belief that civic virtue would sustain popular liberty? The hard lessons of the war and the crises of the 1780s withered confidence in the capacity of Americans to sacrifice their private interests for the public welfare. Many came to share Washington's sober view that the few who act upon principles of disinterestedness are, comparatively speaking, no more than a drop in the ocean. 
The Constitution reflected the new recognition that interests rather than virtue shaped the behavior of most people most of the time and that the clash of diverse interest groups would remain a constant of public life. Yet Madison and many other Federalists did not believe that the competition between private interests would somehow result in policies fostering public welfare. That goal would be met instead by the new national government acting as a disinterested and dispassionate umpire in disputes between different passions and interests of the state. The Federalists looked to the national government to fulfill that role because they trusted that a larger public with its millions of citizens would yield more of that scarce resource disinterested gentlemen dedicated to serving the public good. Such gentlemen, in Madison's words, whose enlightened views and virtuous sentiments render them superior to local prejudices, would fill the small number of national offices. Not all of the old revolutionaries agreed. Anti-Federalists drawn from the ranks of ordinary Americans still believed that common people were more virtuous and gentlemen more interested than the Federalists allowed. These lawyers and men of learning and moneyed men that talk so finely complain when anti-federalists will get all the power and all of the money into their own hands, and then they will swallow up all us little folk. Instead of being dominated by enlightened gentlemen, the national government should be composed of representatives from every social class and occupational group. The narrow majorities by which the Constitution was ratified reflected the continuing influence of such sentiments, as well as fear that the states were surrendering too much power. That fear made Patrick Henry so ardent an anti-federalist that he refused to attend the Constitutional Convention in 1787, saying that he smelt a rat. I'm not a Virginian, but an American, Henry M. once declared. Most likely he was lying. <laughs> or perhaps Patrick Henry, a southerner and a slaveholder, could see his way clear to being an American only as long as sovereignty remained firmly in the hands of individual states. Henry's convictions, 70 years hence, would rise again to haunt the Union. All right, folks, so just a recap here. Leading Americans would give more thought to federalism, the organization of the United States, as the events of the post-revolutionary period revealed the weaknesses of the state and national governments. So for a decade after independence, the revolutionaries were less committed to creating a single national republic than to organizing 13 separate state republics, each dominated by popularly elected legislatures. The Articles of Confederation provided for a government by a national legislature, but left the crucial power of the purse, as well as all final power to make and execute laws entirely to the states. Many conflicts in the new republic were occasional or occasioned by westward expansion, which created both international difficulties with Britain and Spain and internal tensions over the democratization of state legislatures. In the wake of the revolution, ordinary Americans struggled to define Republican society. Workers began to organize. Some women claimed a right to greater political, legal, and educational opportunities, and religious dissenters called for disestablishment. In the mid-1780s, the political crises of the Confederation came to a head, prompted by the controversy over the Jay Gardoki Treaty and Shays Rebellion. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 produced an entirely new frame of government that established a truly national republic and provided for a separation of powers among a judiciary, a bicameral legislature, and a strong executive. The anti-federalist opponents of the Constitution softened their objectives, objections when promised a Bill of Rights after ratification, which was incorporated into the Constitution by 1791. 
All right, folks. So this was looking at that first decade or so after the revolution. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. We're going to pick up with the next podcast episode, which is going to look at the early republic. So from the time we get this new constitution, 1789, all the way through 1824. So we're going to start really picking up. This is when history starts to get kind of interesting, many people say. All right. I'll see you guys next time.